Section 86 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 12. The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 86. How Lafayette Came to America. 1777 by Edward Everett In the summer of 1776, and just after the American Declaration of Independence, Lafayette was stationed at Metz, a garrison town on the road from Paris to the German frontier, with the regiment to which he was attached, as a captain of dragoons, not then nineteen years of age. The Duke of Gloucester, the brother of the King of England, happened to be on a visit to Metz, and a dinner was given to him by the commandant of the garrison. Lafayette was invited, with other officers, to the entertainment. Dispatches had just been received by the Duke from England, relating to the American affairs, the resistance of the colonists, and the strong measures adopted by the ministers to crush the rebellion. Among the details stated by the Duke of Gloucester was the extraordinary fact that these remote, scattered, and unprotected settlers of the wilderness had solemnly declared themselves an independent people. That word decided the fortunes of the enthusiastic listener, and not more distinctly was the Great Declaration a charter of political liberty to the rising states than it was a commission to their youthful champion to devote his life to the sacred cause. The details which he heard were new to him. The American contest was known to him before, but as a rebellion, a tumultuary affair in a remote transatlantic colony, he now with a promptness of perception, which, even at this distance of time, strikes us as a little less than miraculous, addressed a multitude of inquiries to the Duke of Gloucester on the subject of the contest. His imagination was kindled at the idea of a civilized people struggling for political liberty. His heart was warmed with the possibility of drawing his sword in a good cause. Before he left the table, his course was mentally resolved on, and the brother of the King of England, unconsciously, no doubt, had the singular fortune to enlist from the French court and the French army this gallant and fortunate champion in the then unpromising cause of the Colonial Congress. He immediately repaired to Paris to make further inquiries and arrangements toward the execution of his great plan. He confided it to two young friends, officers like himself, the Count Ségur and Viscount de Noailles, and proposed to them to join him. They shared his enthusiasm and determined to accompany him, but on consulting their families they were refused permission. But they faithfully kept Lafayette's secret. Happily, shall I say, he was an orphan, independent of control, and master of his own fortune, amounting to near $40,000 per annum. He next opened his heart to Count de Broglie, a marshal in the French army. To the experienced warrior, accustomed to the regular campaigns of European service, the project seemed rash and quixotic, and one which he could not countenance. Lafayette 
begged the Count at least not to betray him, as he was resolved, notwithstanding his disapproval of the project, to go to America. This the Count promised, adding, however, I saw your uncle fall in Italy, and I witnessed your father's death at the Battle of Winden, and I would not be accessory to the ruin of the only remaining branch of the family. He then used all the powers of argument which his age and experience suggested to him to dissuade Lafayette from the enterprise, but in vain. Finding his determination unalterable, he made him acquainted with the Baron de Calb, who, the Count knew, was about to embark for America. An officer of experience and merit, who, as is well known, fell at the Battle of Camden. The Baron de Calb introduced Lafayette to Silas Dean, then agent of the United States in France, who explained to him the state of affairs in America and encouraged him in his project. Dean was but imperfectly acquainted with the French language and of matters somewhat repulsive. A less enthusiastic temper than that of Lafayette might have been somewhat chilled by the style of his intercourse. He had as yet not been acknowledged in any public capacity and was beset by the spies of the British ambassador. For these reasons, it was judged expedient that the visit of Lafayette should not be repeated, and their further negotiations were conducted through the intervention of Mr. Carmichael, an American gentleman, at the time in Paris. The arrangement was at length concluded, in virtue of which Dean took upon himself, without authority, but by a happy exercise of discretion to engage Lafayette to enter the American service with the rank of Major General. A vessel was about to be dispatched with arms and other supplies for the American army, and in this vessel it was settled that he should take passage. At this juncture, the news reached France of the evacuation of New York, the loss of Fort Washington, the calamitous retreat through New Jersey, and the other disasters of the campaign of 1776. The friends of America in France were in despair. The tidings, bad in themselves, were greatly exaggerated in the British gazettes. The plan of sending an armed vessel with munitions was abandoned. The cause, always doubtful, was now pronounced desperate, and Lafayette was urged by all who were privy to his project to give up an enterprise so wild and hopeless. Even our commissioners, for Dean had been joined by Dr. Franklin and Arthur Lee, told him they could not, in conscience, urge him to proceed. His answer was, My zeal and love of liberty have perhaps hitherto been the prevailing motive with me, but now I see a chance of usefulness which I had not anticipated. These supplies I know are greatly wanted by Congress. I have money. I will purchase a vessel to convey them to America, and in this vessel my companions and myself will take passage. Yes, fellow citizens, that I may repeat an exclamation uttered ten years ago by him who has now the honor to address you in the presence of an immense multitude who welcomed the nation's guest to the academic shades of Harvard and by them received with acclamations of approval and tears of gratitude. When he was told by our commissioners that they did not possess the means nor the credit of procuring a single vessel in all the ports of France, then exclaimed the gallant and generous youth, I will provide my own. 
And it is a literal fact that when our beloved country was too poor to offer him so much as a passage to her shores, he left in his tender youth the bosom of home, of happiness, of wealth, and of rank, to plunge in the dust and blood of our inauspicious struggle. In pursuance of the generous purpose thus conceived, the secretary of the Count de Broglie was employed by Lafayette to purchase and fit out a vessel at Bordeaux. And while these preparations were in train, with a few of averting suspicion from his movements, and passing the tedious interval of delay, he made a visit with a relative to his kinsman, the Marquis de Noailles, then the French ambassador in London. During their stay in Great Britain, they were treated with kindness by the king and persons of rank. But having, after a lapse of three weeks, learned that his vessel was ready at Bordeaux, Lafayette suddenly returned to France. This visit was of service to the youthful adventurer, in furnishing him an opportunity to improve himself in English language. But beyond this, a nice sense of honor forbade him from making use of the opportunity, which it afforded, for obtaining military information that could be of utility to the American army. So far did he carry the scruple that he declined visiting the naval establishment at Portsmouth. On his return to France, he did not even visit Paris. But after three days passed at Passy, the residence of Dr. Franklin, he hastened to Bordeaux. Arrived at this place, he found that his vessel was not yet ready, and had the still greater mortification to learn that the spies of the British ambassador had penetrated his designs and made them known to the family of Lafayette and to the king from whom an order for his arrest was daily expected. Unprepared as his ship was, he instantly sailed in her to passage, the nearest port in Spain, where he proposed to wait for the vessel's papers. Scarcely had he arrived in that harbor when he was encountered by two officers, with letters from his family and from the ministers and the royal order directing him to join his father-in-law at Marseille. The minister's letters reprimanded him for violating his oath of allegiance and failing in his duty to his king. Lafayette, in some of his letters to his friends about court, replied to this remark that the ministers might chide him with failing in his duty to the king when they learned to discharge theirs to the people. His family censored him for his desertion of his domestic duties, but his heroic wife, instead of joining in the reproach, shared his enthusiasm and encouraged his enterprise. He was obliged to return with the officers to Bordeaux and report himself to the commandant. While there, and engaged in communicating with his family and the court, in explanation and defense of his conduct, he learned from a friend at Paris that a positive prohibition of his departure might be expected from the king. No further time was to be lost, and no middle course pursued. He feigned a willingness to yield to the wishes of his family, and started as for Marseille, with one of the officers who was to accompany him to America. Scarcely had they left the city of Bordeaux, when he assumed the dress of a courier mounted a horse, and rode forward to procure relays. They soon quitted the road to Marseille, and struck into that which leads to Spain. On reaching Bayonne, they were detained two or three hours. While the companion of Lafayette was employed in some important commission in the city, he himself lay on the straw in the stable. At Saint-Jean-de-Luz, 
he was recognized by the daughter of the person who kept the post house. She had observed him a few days before as he passed from Spain to Bordeaux. Perceiving that he was discovered and not daring to speak to her, he made her a signal to keep silence. She complied with the intimation, and when, shortly after he had passed on, his pursuers came up, she gave them an answer which baffled their penetration and enabled Lafayette to escape into Spain. He was instantly on board his ship and at sea with eleven officers in his train. It would take one beyond the limits of the occasion to repeat the various casualties and exposures of his passage, which lasted sixty days. His vessel had cleared out for the West Indies, but Lafayette directed the captain to steer for the United States, which, especially as he had a large pecuniary adventure of his own on board, he declined doing. By threats to remove him from his command and promises to indemnify him for the loss of his property, should they be captured, Lafayette prevailed upon the captain to steer his course for the American coast, where at least they happily arrived, having narrowly escaped two British vessels at war, which were cruising in that quarter. They made the coast near Georgetown, South Carolina. It was late in the day before they could approach so near land as to leave the vessel. Anxious to tread the American soil, Lafayette with some of his fellow officers entered the ship's boat and was rowed at nightfall to shore. A distant light guided them in their landing and advanced into the country. Arriving near the house from which the lights proceeded, an alarm was given by the watchdogs, and they were mistaken by those within for a marauding party, from the enemy's vessels hovering on the coast. The Baron de Calpe, however, had a good knowledge of the English language, acquired on a previous visit to America, and was soon able to make known who they were and what was their errand. On this they were of course readily admitted and cordially welcomed. The house in which they found themselves was that of Major Huger, a citizen of worth, hospitality and patriotism, by whom every good office was performed to the adventurous strangers. He provided the next day the means of conveying Lafayette and his companions to Charleston, where they were received with enthusiasm by the magistrates and the people. As soon as possible, they proceeded by land to Philadelphia. On his arrival there, with the eagerness of a youth anxious to be employed upon his errand, he sent his letters to our townsman, Mr. Lovell, chairman of the Committee of Foreign Relations. He called the next day at the Hall of Congress and asked to see this gentleman. Mr. Lovell came out to him, stated that so many foreigners offered themselves for employment in the American army that Congress was greatly embarrassed to find them commands, that the finances of the country required the most rigid economy, and that he feared, in the present case, there was little hope of success. Lafayette perceived that the worthy chairman had made up his report without looking at the papers. He explained to him that his application, if granted, would lay no burden upon the finances of Congress, and addressed a letter to the President in which he expressed a wish to enter the American army on the condition of serving without pay or emoluments and on the footing a volunteer. These conditions removed the chief obstacles alluded to in reference to the appointment of foreign officers. The letters brought by Lafayette made known to Congress his high connections and his large means of usefulness, and without an hour's delay 
who received from them a commission of major general in the American army a month before he was 20 years of age. End of section 86. This recording is in the public domain.